morning, everyone, and welcome in to another edition of the MacGyver Newsmakers Podcast. I'm Brett Healy, president of the John K. MacGyver Institute for Public Policy. We are excited to have you join us for a timely conversation on inflation and President Biden's economic policy with Brian Riedel, Appleton, Wisconsin, born and bred. Brian is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, where he focuses on budget, tax, and economic policy. Brian is a longtime federal budget expert and deficit hawk. A quick reminder before we get started, with the continuing censorship of conservatives by big tech, please take a second to sign up for the MacGyver Institute newsletter at MacGyverInstitute.com. That's MacGyverInstitute.com. While the social media censors will hide and throttle our content from you on mainstream platforms, signing up for our email newsletter is a direct connection and the only way you can be sure that you will receive MacGyver's timely and spot-on analysis direct to your inbox. Now on to today's conversation. We welcome in Brian. Brian, give us your reaction to the news last week that June inflation was 9.1%, the highest increase in the last 40 years. Well, Brett, thanks for, thanks for having me here. The numbers keep getting worse, even as every month we're told the worst is over. We keep being told inflation has crescendo and it's going to start coming down. We were told last month not to worry too much. Not only was it 9% for the past year, but last month's inflation rate annualized just for the month would be 17%. Um, That's the 1.3% prices went up last month if that continued. It's, inflation is now totally broad-based. Over the past year, groceries are up 12%, gas 60%, electricity 14%, new cars 11%, flights 34%, goods, services. The only area that's not showing really growing prices is the price of labor. Wages have slowed in the last month, which means that for the past year, real wages are down 3.7%. And that's why this is the number one issue now in polling, because everything's getting more expensive for families. Their wages aren't keeping up. This is leading to a very furious electorate for good reason. And so how did we end up here? How did we get to this place now with runaway inflation? Well, I think you have to go back to the pandemic. First, when the Federal Reserve in order to keep the economy afloat while everyone was, not everyone, but where a lot of people were told not to work, the Federal Reserve poured $4 trillion into the economy. What that did is it it didn't create a much inflation at first because the economy was so fragile and people were kind of saving the money. But once the economy started to reopen, you had $4 trillion of extra demand that exploded into the economy. And then on top of it, the Biden administration made it even worse, particularly by doing a $1.9 trillion American rescue plan a year ago. At the time, the Congressional Budget Office said that the economy is about $400 billion short of what it needs to be operating at full employment. And so they then responded by shooting a $1.9 trillion bazooka (laughs) into a $420 billion output gap, which of course continued to overheat the economy. So when you have the combination of the Federal Reserve printing money like they've never printed before, and then Congress turning on the spending like never before, the two of those just put so much new money into the economy that things kept growing or that that, that the, the inflation kept growing. And they did it at a time when supply was constrained, when 
Um, producers were not able to produce very much because they were coming out of the pandemic and they didn't have workers. Supply chains were constrained. The ports, particularly in California, were totally backed up. And you can you do all this demand at a time of constrained supply, of course you're gonna get inflation. And it's really something policymakers should have seen coming. So you're not buying the president and his administration's explanation that somehow it, uh, uh, Putin or big meat or evil corporations are to blame for this? Look, I mean, uh, some portion of the oil and gas prices go back to the embargo against Russia, sure. So some modest portion of gas prices can be traced back to the war in Afghanistan or the war in Ukraine and our embargo. But again, we have broad-based inflation going well beyond gas. Again, we have clothes, cars, food, everything going up. Uh, additionally, it's pretty hard to blame inflation fully on a war that started a year after the inflation began. The corporate greed argument um, is one that's gotten a lot of attention. And I think it's gotten a lot of attention from non-economists. I think those of us in economic policy understand the reason, the reason prices are up is because of supply and demand. When you pump $4 trillion of new demand into the economy, it's gonna increase demand. And when it increases demand, what are you going to do? You're going to raise your price in order to avoid a shortage. If all of a sudden you have, um, let, let's say you're, let's say you cut hair for a living. Let's say you're a hairstylist. Instead of 10 people coming in a day, you have 30 people coming in a day because of all the new demand. What are your choices? Either turn away the other 20 people or raise prices to the amount of people you can actually accommodate. That's why prices are going up. That's why profits are going up, because not necessarily because they're gouging, but because when demand goes up, the only way to maintain supply and demand at equilibrium is to raise prices. And so it's not that corporations suddenly decided to become greedy in the past year after 40 years of not being greedy. Um, it's basically supply and demand. Uh, driven by trillions of dollars of new demand injected into the economy by policymakers. So, so when President Biden pushed through his plan, the, the printing of all this new money and handing it out to anyone and everyone, even, even if they didn't need it, right. um, as you pointed out, most of us predicted that this would happen. Any insight on what President Biden and his economic advisors thought would happen? They, well, I'll say first, they were looking more short-term at the economy. They thought the economy was about to go into a recession again, coming out of the pandemic. And there's a, there's a, a fairy tale on the Democratic side among Democratic economists that starts with the, 2000 and, uh, the 2008 Great Recession. According to their, their fairy tale, we had the, the economy went into the Great Recession in 2008, and President Obama responded with an $800 billion stimulus bill. What they will tell you is that the reason the economy was so sluggish under President Obama, and you and I remember how the, weak, the weakest economy, the weakest recovery in decades coming out of the Great Recession, the democratic fairy tale was that it was because there was not enough stimulus. The $800 billion by President Obama, which actually became about one and a half trillion dollars 
with all the follow-up bills, they will tell you it was because the economy was too small. And therefore, when we got to this recession, the argument was we're not going to repeat that mistake and we are going to go as we're, we're going to go substantially higher than the 800 billion dollar last time we're going to go up to nearly two trillion dollars now at the time even democratic economists warned them that in that quickly recovering economy with everyone going back to work two trillion was excessive jason Furman, larry summers all these top democratic economists said in this condition that's excessive. But this fairy tale that not enough stimulus doomed us in 2008 convinced them that stimulus is a free lunch and you need to go big. And so they went big, they ignored the warnings. And those of us who saw what was coming and screamed at the time that this is going to be inflationary and that it was too big were ignored. It, it's kind of the triumph of how a political narrative can trump economics over a decade and then drive new policy. And you, you mentioned politics, and I think uh, that had something to do with it, because if you take a look at what the COVID relief money was actually spent on, very little of it was spent on COVID measures. Mm -hmm. um, most of it was spent on this ideal, this, this push by President Biden and Democrats in Congress to transition the economy to what they want it to be, what they uh, have promised their base it should be. Uh, can you talk a little bit about um, what yeah. the actual yeah. COVID money went for? You know, you go back to, again, if you go back to the 2009 stimulus, Rahm Emanuel, Obama's White House chief of staff, famously said, never let a crisis go to waste. That's clearly what they were doing this time around. So only about 1%, by the end, only about 1% of the COVID money was actually going to public health and COVID. And you had money going instead to the new, chi uh, new child credit going up to 3,000 or $3,600. You had huge rebates for families the rebates uh, totaled about $11,500 per family of four by the time you did all of the rebates, regardless of whether you had lost your job or not. We're not talking about not helping out people who were furloughed because of, or, or had lost their job. We're talking about people earning $200,000 a year and working. We're getting $11,500 per family. You had money going everywhere. You had money going to schools that that was not even gonna be spent for eight to 10 years. So clearly you can't call that pandemic relief. And as a matter of fact, if you just look at the American Rescue Plan, $1.9 trillion, again, less than 5% went to pandemic relief. You had huge rebate checks. You had $350 billion going to states to plug budget deficits that didn't exist. They were running surpluses, but they got $350 billion. Essentially, this was a payoff to governors, mayors, and public employee unions. You had um, $129 billion going to schools, not for anything related to COVID, but just for schools. There was an $80 billion bailout to private unions, not, not government unions, private unions got an $80 billion bailout. And of course they said, oh, this is all one-time spending related to the pandemic. 
until until the spending started to expire. When the child credit started to expire, suddenly it was, wait a minute, this is a big benefit cliff, we need to continue it, which shows you the point was to create permanent benefits, not necessarily just to plug the gap. Again, as Rahm Emanuel said, never let a crisis go to waste. So given your expertise, President Biden calls today and asks you to the White House. Speaker Pelosi has you up to the hill. What is the Brian Riedel plan to stop inflation and pull us out of this recession? Uh, there's a lot of ideas we can do. Um, first, stop digging. Uh, stop the spending. Uh, right now, President Biden is still trying to enact uh, a Build Back Better plan that could cost as much as $5 trillion over the decade. That's insanity even in good times. But when inflation is rate is 9%, trying to do $5 trillion in spending is completely insane. Number two, oil and gas exploration. Encourage oil and gas uh, domestically to lower prices. Number three, end the student loan payment moratorium. Uh, it was one thing to have people not paying their student loan during the pandemic when unemployment was through the roof. Well, right now, the unemployment rate's 3.6%. You can pay back your student loan. Number four, repeal tariffs. The Peterson Institute for International Economics says that even a two percentage point reduction in tariffs would lower the inflation rate and save families $800 a year. Re repealing tariffs should be a no-brainer. Number five, repeal Buy America provisions. These are the president's provisions that says the government is only going to buy products made in America, even if they cost twice as much as anything made abroad. That raises prices. Number six, stop expanding Davis-Bacon. Davis-Bacon is the prevailing wage rules that says government contracts have to pay these inflated wages that are well over local market rates. That's inflationary. Biden's expanding it. Stop doing that. Number seven, repeal new ethanol rules. Uh, this is something that I, I, I know has always been big in Wisconsin, uh, controversial issues on that raise gas prices. Uh, the Biden administration said that instead of being 10% ethanol, gas should be 15% ethanol, which raises food prices because it means that a lot of the corn that would be going to groceries is instead going to gas, it's gonna raise the price at the grocery store. Number seven or num number eight, um, repeal uh, new environmental regulations on infrastructure. Call, there's, a, there's this uh, law called NEPA, which essentially stops infrastructure spending until you can go through a bunch of lawsuits that are really expensive, uh, that can be filed by anybody and that raise prices. And finally, uh, number nine, I would repeal the Jones Act, which basically is a limit on who can ship goods from port to port. And it's creating a bottleneck of shipping uh, from port to port and, and, and raising prices. In fact, the Jones Act and in some places raises the cost of shipping uh, from China to the United States by a 50%. If you repeal the Jones Act, more companies can, can, can ship goods across oceans, the price of that goes down. That's nine things that the president can do uh, and Congress can do to limit inflation that would actually take the pressure off the Federal Reserve and, and actually make a big difference and save families money 
they're doing none of it. And, and you wrote a piece in the New York Post about that very fact that President Biden is unlikely, unwilling, however you want to put it, to actually uh, address inflation. Can you walk our listeners through uh, uh, your insight uh, on that? Yeah, I wrote on this in the New York Post last week. It's kind of crazy that as, as much as voters are freaked out about inflation, for good reason, the president and Democrats are sure pointing a lot of fingers. Putin's price hike, big meat, gouging, Republicans. But have you seen any major bills come to the floor to fight inflation? Have you seen any proposal by the White House to fight inflation? Nothing. They're really, they actually haven't proposed anything. And it's crazy that four months before the election, the, the issue that the voters are most concerned about is something that lawmakers are actually not proposing anything on. And I think the reason is actually paradoxically because we're too close to the election. The calculation, I believe, that's going on in the White House and Democratic Congress is that Anything they do to fight inflation would probably take about four to five months to wind through the economy. At that point, the election's over. Additionally, if it did help, it would help by three or four points. Voters may not notice by then if the inflation rate drops only a few points, and they may not give politicians credit. So I think the viewpoint among the president and Congress is it's too late for anything that they would do to make a big enough difference to be noticed. So instead, they view inflation as really just another chess piece to win the blame war. This isn't a policy problem, it's a communications problem. We're not gonna fix it because we're not gonna get political credit. So instead, we need to make sure the Republicans get the blame because they're just looking at the political calendar. If the fact that their solutions might start to bring down inflation in December, they don't care about December. Um, they just care about the election. And when you look at the fact that a lot of the aforementioned um, policies I mentioned uh, earlier would anger unions, they would anger environmentalists, they would ang anger manufacturing, they would anger students with student loans, progressive spenders. Democrats and Biden don't wanna anger any of their constituent groups just to bring down inflation that's not going to be noticed until after the election. So they have made, I believe, this judgment that it is more important to keep the Democratic coalition together rather than do anything that won't be noticed until after the election. I think it's cynical. <laughs> um, and, and additionally, it's just going to make the, the, the economy worse and possibly create a bigger recession that they're just going to have to deal with next year. The politics, once again, gets in the way of good public policy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, can you walk us through um, the impact runaway inflation has on the federal budget and the national debt? I, I think most people aren't uh, tuned into this, and they need to be. The numbers are terrifying. Families are all feeling inflation. We all know what 9.1% 9 9 inflation feels like. Um, we're, we're feeling it at the grocery store. We're feeling it when we buy clothes. We're feeling it at the gas pump. Even we're feeling it if you're buying a house right now. Mortgage rates are rising and home prices are rising. The federal budget is about to be hammered uh, even worse because we already have uh, a $24 trillion debt held by the public. 
that's on course to go to about 35 trillion in the next decade. And we're on pace to add 112 trillion dollars in deficits over the next 30 years. Let me repeat that. We're on course, even if we do nothing, to add $112 trillion in baseline deficits over the next 30 years. These numbers are terrifying. So what happens when you take that much debt and you raise the interest rate? The numbers go through the roof. Because one thing people don't realize is the federal government doesn't lock in low interest rates. They rely on short-term borrowing. So when interest rates rise, the whole debt rolls over into the new higher rates. And again, anyone with a student loan knows when you have enough money borrowed, even slight changes in interest rates are gonna hit you hard. Well, let's say interest rates rise one percentage point. That's gonna cost two and a half trillion dollars over the decade in higher interest costs. Hmm. One point. And keep in mind, the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates by 0.75 per month. One point will cost $2.5 trillion over the decade. That's, um, that's as much as, as that's actually that's about a third more than the 2017 tax cuts cost per point. Um, and it gets worse. Over 30 years, Every time points rise one percentage, interest rates rise one percentage rate over um, the CBO baseline, it will add $30 trillion in 30 years in interest costs, one point. Mm -hmm. That number seems big and we don't know what it means, I'll tell you. One percentage point costing 30 trillion, that's the cost of doubling the Defense Department. So it's like, imagine we create an entire new defense department every time rates rise by one percentage point. So if rates rise two percentage points, that's $60 trillion, that's creating two defense departments. What it means is that 30 years from now, the baseline is that half of your taxes go to interest on the debt. If rates rise one more point, 70% of your taxes go to interest on the debt. And if rates rise two points, 100% of your taxes just go to interest on the debt. So the numbers get to be like monopoly money. I can, I can give you even bigger numbers, but what you see is that the federal government is in a really dangerous position right now because the amount of debt that we're taking on in our yearly budget deficits is only manageable if interest rates stay low forever. If they rise on that debt, again, Two and a half trillion over the decade, 30 trillion over 30 years per point. So you better hope, and we all better hope, interest rates stay low. Otherwise, let's be honest, we're going to face a major debt crisis, uh, and it's going to happen sooner than we think. Again, um, the, the, the nightmare that you paint, uh, the only reason that we don't seem to be taking this seriously is politics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's because... The, the solutions are, aren't popular. I mean, right now, the main driver of long-term deficits is Social Security and Medicare. Uh, as a matter of fact, Social Security and Medicare shortfalls comprise almost the entire long-term $112 trillion baseline deficit. It's simply 74 million baby boomers and rising healthcare costs are going to strip the amount of money going into the system through payroll taxes and health premiums. No one wants to touch it. I've been working on this issue in Washington for 20 years. No one wants to address Social Security and Medicare. Even Republicans are scared to address it right now. 
And so even if politicians don't continue spending on new programs, just the baseline deficits are going to hit about $3 trillion in a decade per year, even during peace and prosperity, just due to Social Security and Medicare shortfalls. Um, just to, to give you a number on how bad like Medicare is, over the next 30 years, Medicare is going to collect $20 trillion in payroll taxes and premiums. It's going to spend $97 trillion in benefits and resulting interest costs. That means one program is gonna run a $77 trillion shortfall over 30 years. <laughs> you, can't, you can't survive that uh, fiscally, um, but you, know, you just can't get people in Congress to talk about it because they're all looking at the next election. Well, on that upbeat note, uh, sadly, uh, our time today, Brian, is up. Uh, tell our listeners uh, where they can find your analysis and commentary. Sure, Brett. I am at the Manhattan Institute. You can Google Manhattan Institute. Um, you can Google my name on it, Brian Riedel, B-R-I-A-N-R-I-E-D-L. I'm also on Twitter, at Brian underscore Riedel, where I provide daily frustrated commentary on the debates uh, uh, and punctured with a lot of frustration over the Packers, Bucks, and Brewers, and Badgers uh, in my tweets as well um, as a native Appletonian. So, yep, you can find me, Manhattan Institute. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, and and by the way, uh, McIver is an, a wonderful think tank. I just want to throw out there that you guys do amazing work. I'm a huge fan of your work. And uh, you're making Wisconsin such a well-governed state with the exception of the current governor. Uh, you guys are doing a fabulous job. Well, I appreciate that, but I, I do wanna thank you again for joining <laughs> us today. And please, please, please keep pushing on all of this, the entitlements, the spending, the deficit. Uh, your work is vital and uh, you are critical to any chance we have to save our country from a financial and economic meltdown. Thank you again for all that you do and thanks for joining us today. Thanks again, Brett. If you are new to the podcast and like what you hear, make sure you get every MacGyver Newsmakers podcast delivered directly to your device. Don't miss a single interview with key newsmakers in Wisconsin and beyond. Be sure to subscribe through your favorite podcast app, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. And make sure you share the MacGyver podcast with your friends, your family, and those in your life who could use a little exposure to common sense. If you have an idea for a podcast, send us an email at info at MacGyverInstitute.com. That email address again, info at MacGyverInstitute.com. Or follow us on Twitter at MacGyverReport. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, any ideas for guests you would like to hear from, comments, criticism, whatever else is on your mind. Thanks again for listening to the MacGyver Newsmaker Podcast. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight, everyone.